Hello! Welcome back to the Silicon Sasquatch podcast. Uh, this is episode 54 for those of you who like to count, and my name is Nick Cummings. Uh, I'm joined today by Aaron Thayer. Hello. Uh, Tyler Martin. Good morning. And Doug Bonham. Hello. And yeah, we got most of the gang here, and we're here to talk about kind of a, uh, well, it's it's kind of a subject that you can't avoid at this point in games, and it's that's good because it really needs to be discussed. But uh, we're now, gosh, I want to say like three months into the madness, at least two months into the madness of Gamergate, this uh, so-called social movement to um, to do whatever. We'll get into that in a moment. But uh, it's no matter where you're coming at it from or how you perceived it initially, how your views may or may not have changed on it, um, there's no question that it's done a lot of damage to a lot of people. And uh, I think what we wanted to do at this point is just rather than try to rehash everything that led up to this point, all the events, all the specific situations, all the people who were driven from their homes out of fear, we wanted to just instead just talk about, um, <laughs> actually have an honest to conversation about uh, ethics in games and the games industry in games journalism, games criticism, if games journalism even exists at this point, and uh, kind of talk about how this whole event may or may not have changed the way that any future conversations about ethics in this industry can be had. So um, just for a very quick background on Gamergate, unless anyone has anything else to uh, interject with right now. Nope. Uh, so uh, we're going to link to uh, a great timeline and breakdown of exactly what this whole movement was. But uh, suffice it to say, uh, ostensibly Gamergate was a movement, uh, a Twitter hashtag pretty much that spiraled out that was created to, um, ostensibly be a place to talk about a need for ethics in games journalism. There was a perceived lack of um, ethical consideration from people who are in the games writing world, whether it's blogging, traditional media, broadcast, video, YouTube, any of these things. And so on the surface, I think most level-headed people would say, okay, it's it's good to be ethical and to be mindful of these concerns in your specific industry or in your your hobbies, your fields, your passions. Um, without getting into too many details, because again, we just couldn't do it justice or provide the nuance we need in a short podcast. Um, the, the Gamergate hashtag was used, um, regardless of the intentions of all of its members, was used by a small few to basically wage uh, a, a harassment campaign against specific people. Uh, mostly people who... Uh, Fem people who offer feminist criticism or feminist game developers or allies of feminist game developers. So um, you've probably heard the names Zoe Quinn, Anita Sarkeesian, uh, Brianna Wu. Uh, these are all women who uh, are either creators or critics of the games industry who have been driven from their homes out of fear because of threats from people who um, effectively were supporting the Gamergate movement. Now, I don't want to make this sound like we're saying all Gamergators are bad or something, or anyone who has ever used this hashtag is a bad person. Because as a gross generalization, and, like, we don't want to go down that path. Because, like, at the same time, like, I think those acts are reprehensible, and I think that if you are willingly associating yourself with a movement that has been used to do these things, you need to take a serious moment to pause and reflect on whether or not this best reflects the way you want to go with this conversation. Because harassment and targeting women 
in a field that has been historically dominated by men is kind of shitty no matter how you look at it. Like, I think it's I think it's fair to say that. So we're not going to get into that too much right now. But I wanted to kind of kick out the conversation by asking you guys a question about, like, this whole notion of, like, having a conversation about ethics in games um, at all. So whether that's journalistic, uh, whether it's in the actual publishing, developer relations world, or in how all these things come together, um, what do you guys think are these issues? Like, what 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 stands out to you? Specifically, it seems that the issue for a lot of people that don't really have a lot of experience in a professional environment, especially a professional environment where you're writing about a particular topic or a particular industry, that they think that the people covering these stories, the people doing these product reviews, and let's be honest, that's what game reviews mostly are. They're product reviews. They're not artistic critiques, their argument is that these people are too close to the uh, people involved in the product that they're making. Like, the idea that if you're doing a review for a particular game, even if you personally know people that either work on the game itself or work for the company that is uh, publishing it, or any manner of connections, they think that that would be wildly inappropriate. And they think that it taints people's opinions and views and the way they cover these games. Does that seem reasonable, though? In my experience, I mean, I, I can certainly understand the perspective. My initial uh, reaction would be that you're first you're probably taking video game reviews slightly too seriously. I mean, Why it is a multi-million that... dollar industry, but the idea that a game company would be shelling out large amounts of money or uh, leaning on their employees to then lean on their friends to get better scores for their games or any sort of banner of corruption you're imagining in your head, like, I don't think that's very likely. And to think that you could exist in a very small industry and even if it is millions of dollars, like it is relatively small compared to other industries, like that you could exist and you could thrive in such an industry without having that level of closeness with the people you're covering. It's very unreasonable and it would make everyone's job significantly more difficult. And you, you got to wonder like, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve? Like a lot of these people say they want unbiased reviews, but what they're, really asking for is they they just want reviews that are more in line with their way of thinking because they are disconnected <laughs> from this process they they yeah they don't know these people and they think that oh if you disagree with me it's because you know those people and therefore you are m more likely to give them a fair shake or a, not even a fair shake a, a, a nicer shake if you want a good laugh go to objective i think it's objectivegamereviews.com or something similar it's uh it's a good example of why subjectivity is essential to criticism. Because yeah. it's just like, this is a game with buttons that you push. It's a 9 out of 10. Here's, Sorry. <laughs> here's well, the core issue with games journalism that's been in existence since it started in the 80s with the rise of the home console generations. Is, uh, you know, I don't think it's inherently unethical, uh, just to put that out there. There are great journalists, even on the big publications, be it IGN or Polygon or the other examples you can use, that 
do real reporting, do real fact-checking, do feature stories. So to generalize, just like we don't want to generalize about all Gamergate hashtag users, <clears throat> let's not you know generalize about all games journalism. But I do think the core problem of it is it's always been a press industry centered around products and software and the enthusiast yep. compared to something like film criticism where yes it's small uh a small subsect of entertainment reporting where it's just about hey well, that's largely incestuous... that's largely people right. who exist in this vacuum devoid of historical precedent like if you look back at the history of games things didn't start out at this level we didn't get to this like narrative level from the start like it started out with arcade games it started out they were toys nintendo went out of their way to convince everyone that no this wasn't a computer this was a toy like that was their mo from the start was we are selling a toy product so yes they have a precedent of being consumer product reviews because that's the way they were originally branded and we are slowly but surely getting away from that but the the notion that we could just do a complete 180 and just decide, nope, all games are art, we're now going to treat them in an uh, artistic way, like that would be deeply unsatisfying for most consumers. Because yeah. if you're arguing about scores, artistic critiques don't have scores. No one... <laughs> no. You don't see someone going through the Guggenheim being like, this feels like a 7.5 to me. I, I'm sure I think people do that. <laughs> well, yeah. The closest you get is like movie reviews where you have like a star system or maybe yeah. like Pitchfork's album reviews or whatever. But I don't know. If if we reviewed album or games the way Pitchfork reviews albums, I think there'd be a lot more vitriol out there because. Well, to continue, yeah, yeah. To continue the point is, like you said, and that's like what I was mentioning is that building of this industry and its press off of the consumerism inherent in this toy um, um, manufacturing, marketing, the way that they were sold in the 70s and 80s and through the 90s, we're still living for the journalism side with, as you talked about, scores and reviews. The console war, fanboy, to generalize the term, wars of the 90s of Nintendo and Sega, like Nintendo versus Sega element, and then the last processing. We're still yeah. talking about these big terms, and we're putting scores on things, and we're trying to uh, divide a populace of people who play games by, oh, you play a PlayStation, you play an Xbox, you play mm-hmm. a Nintendo product. So we're still living in that, and I think that that is where there are ethical problems in games journalism when it comes to the reviews and the press release coverage and things like that, that we're still in that shadow of the 90s. And a lot, a lot of those type. arguments that you see on message boards would be completely asinine in things like the film industry. Like, there's no one saying, yeah. like, you see Universal movies? I only watch Paramount. It's like, no, yeah. no one thinks that way. They judge every movie as its own, like entity as its own uh, brand. Maybe you could make a case for, like, you don't like a particular director, but no one's making huge choices based on movie studio or things of that nature. Yeah, which makes me wonder, like, it seems to me, like, and I, I mean this in the most neutral way possible, that this sort of backlash of wanting to have these rivalries, of wanting to get, you know, have a dog in the fight, is 
kind of like, which I just realized is kind of a weird uh, phrase to use. Yeah, um, it's a strange idiom. Yeah, it's a very strange idiom. I couldn't remember the word idiom, I'm going to be honest. Um, <laughs> so thank you. We'll fix it in post. Yeah, fuck it. Um, no, the, what's it, it seems to me it's almost like a sort of nostalgic conservatism where people miss having like the EGMs of their childhood. They miss this sort of uh, Genesis does what Nintendo don't kind of mantra, the, the playground arguments. And um, as things are moving much towards, like, you know, as we've grown up, our generation people who grew up with cons- the first wave of the consoles, um, there are people, I guess, I'm, I'm assuming, who miss having that kind of identity built around, you know, your allegiances, your identity, your ideas. And, like, when you look at, like, Polygon covering new voices, uh, bringing, like, you know, anyone who writes that they um, literary criticism perspective or a feminist perspective or any of these other, like, you know, academic, traditional Mm-hmm. perspectives uh it doesn't feel welcome in a place where it was much more about like fun and in jokes and rivalries it all comes yeah. down to investment i mean with these consoles you have most people have to choose one they can't afford to get everything i'm a financially independent adult theoretically i could buy a playstation 4 a wii u uh xbox one and a gaming pc it would be financially irresponsible for me to do so, and so I'm not going to do that, which means at the end of the day, there's going to be games I can't play, and there might be games that work better on other platforms. I'm eternally going to have to deal with the fact that you guys can gloat over me that this and that game runs better on your PC than it does on PS4. I no, just have a, to make that's peace a good with point. that. That's a good point, is that that is baked into the mentality of... A gamer, if we want to use the term, or people who play games, is we still have this platform disparity, whereas, and, you know, maybe it's not fair to keep comparing it to an industry like film that has been around for over 100 years and has developed its criticism over, you know, a golden mm-hmm. age of, of movies in the half, the middle half of the last century, but it's still that. Like, you can watch a film on whatever you want, even if it's a VHS not but that hard. There have been the histories of like particular like fanboyish arguments or cinephile arguments to put it more gently, like things like Betamax and VHS, things like uh, HD. But now at this Blu-ray. point, it's almost moot because you can download a digital version of most movies. Like, well, for that, the average consumer, now. it was always moot. They just go to the movie theater and they watch the movie, or they turn on TV and see what movies are playing on. Yeah, it's broadcast. Sure. Or they go to Blockbuster it, and get the right format they want well i was gonna say it's hard for us to remember but home like homing owning home videos is only something that's really happened with our generation like it wasn't until the late 80s when you could actually own a vhs and then they realized that was a a huge untapped market the point being that there's not an xbox of film and there's not a playstation of film and there's not a nintendo of film as much anymore well so you can just enjoy the art of film rather than being locked into an experience based on only the platform that you chose now today the best case scenario is that we do eventually get there with things like uh, PlayStation Now or other streaming services where there is no one device you have to have. Yeah. Where it's yeah. just like, I can have this game stream to my streaming box. And or then I'm TV. done. Your TV. Yeah. yeah. Your TV, you can get like, you can have your PlayStation streaming service, you can have your Microsoft streaming service, you can have your Steam streaming service all on the same device. That is the dream right there. Yep. I think there's a lot of issues that are in 
talking about games review partially has uh, a lot of different possibilities running through my head but you know including that it ignores like to say games review and games criticism needs to be just this ignores that it's taken 20 plus years to develop in the way it has now so to ignore how it's developed and how it can develop would be kind of perilous and to say it has to ape film or another medium directly would ignore the fact that it's a unique medium we yep. can't review games the same way we review we review movies or music because you enjoy and you participate with games in a different way than you would with film or music or other things at the same time, there's journalistic questions about people being too close, but also there's questions now in terms of medium. Um, a good example would be like many people aren't getting their opinions or their purchasing decisions from IGN or Polygon or what we consider to be big sites. They're going to YouTube and listening to people who play games on YouTube and who put up their streams and put up their channels. And there's a lot of problems right now about the standards that YouTubers hold themselves to. Should we like, is the person clarifying that they are? Cause a lot of people on YouTube may or may not consider themselves to be quote unquote games journalists, Yeah, but they're I... certainly critical and providing people with the same service that old EGM reviews and current polygon reviews do, which is whether you should get the game or not. Yeah. Where are the so, ethics concerns on that? Even if Twitch and other yeah. platforms are forcing disclosure. So, and and now with the changes to Steam, with um with Steam's curation, they've got a huge place to show games that they approve of. Yep. So and actually, good chance to plug. We have a Steam curators page, which you know, <laughs> oh my god, ethical quandary. But really, check it out. It's mostly it's all just stuff of all sales. Yeah, uh, we actually are deep in with those guys. So. Yeah, and if any sponsors um, yeah. would like to suggest <laughs> that we play certain games, you can find my email address listed at siliconsasquatch.com. Yeah, or just meet us behind this back alley, you know. Cash but unfortunately, unfortunately, Tyler would go to your Silicon Sasquatch email. Oh no, we're sending this podcast to all the publishers. Really, is what we're going to do. But so, I, but, I think the the funniest part, the worst part of this whole controversy of the last few months is. There are a lot of ethical issues in games and games writing and in the game industry in general, but they're not the one that's being asked by these people. Right. They want, they want a question of ethics in games writing and games journalism. What about when Jeff Gerstmann got fired because he gave a game too low of a score that the advertisers of the said company of that game didn't want? But that was a controversy. Like, you can't say that people didn't make a big deal out of it. Like, they called it Gerstmann Gate. It was a big deal for a while. Giant Bomb yeah. would not exist if not for that controversy. But I think it blew over in about a month. Whereas Gamergate has been an ongoing... Thanks to Twitter, thing. I'm sure. But yeah, which, you know, that whole, might be an unfair comparison. Our whole point with this discussion was that it's it's not that the movement itself is invalid. It's that the movement has been hijacked by people whose primary concern is not editorial integrity. Their primary concern is... Is something else entirely. Is who's covering it. And how they're covering it, and basically they and who's they, making they, games they want echo echo chamber, whether or not they are explicit about that, and the fact that they don't have a bunch of similar looking faces saying the exact same things that they want to hear, they take umbrage with it and they act out in an extremely hostile manner. Another example we can talk about because I don't really want to get into that side of the discussion too much, but in terms of ethics, think about every e three press conference you've ever heard. Currently, E3 press conferences are like 
even more so than Apple press conferences. They're places where they whip up the fan base and get people excited. You hear people cheering all the time. Yep. What's what's the makeup of that group? It's either people who are invited there as press or it's people who are invited there to make noise and to be or people from GameSpot or GameStop and other um, retailers. It's cultish. If if this was a real journalistic area, you would be following more closely what sports does, which is a strict no cheering in the press box policy. If you are covering a sports event, you are not cheering for one team or another. And even though blogs and other more participatory, like fan driven websites have changed the landscape of that recently, Hmm. you'd still get the newspaper and magazine and TV writers giving the blog guys in the corner, the stink eye of the in the press box. I've been to games. I've covered pretty, I've I've covered PAC 12 football games when I was in UO and I was a student there. I love the ducks more than anything. And sometimes it was very hard to cheer up your enth- or to cover up your enthusiasm. And but you have to because that is what you have to do as a journalist. And Dogs in a better world, games, you, know. you would see stories like what happened with Zoe Kane and her ex-boyfriend covered closer in a manner to those NFL players that are being charged with domestic violence. Like what he did was a massive invasion of her privacy and trust. And that's not okay, regardless of any misgivings you might have about journalistic integrity. It's not okay to be putting out information about people like that. Like, you're defaming someone's character and you're giving out private information that is not yours to divulge. Well, even, even something mentioned by Polygon when they finally did tackle this issue is even just talking about that is kind of journalistically, ethically bad. Because you're piling on when, in, in this case, you should be doing no harm to the victim. Just bringing it up is adding to their own problem. If I that's, go that's and... a fair point. And we've seen that struggle in this in, since the rise of the Gamergate controversy is what seemed to be a just complete lack of conversation around it from any publication. Aside from posting about developers who had signed an open letter saying that we... Uh, they don't support any violence threats against women of making game development in the gaming industry an open inclusive place. Like for the first month or so, that was most of the coverage that any of the big sites would do. And Mm -hmm. it really, and you're right, as far as the ethics code and things that real quoting gear, quote unquote, real journalists do is, you know, you're not supposed to make yourself a part of the story. You're not supposed to, uh, commentate on that. That's what editorials are for, or an editorial board are bringing something up as a full publication that we are for or against something. But I think that, and maybe this is part of the ethical problem that some of these more extreme gamer gators were trying to get at, is the industry seems to be very self-aware, the, the press, that is, games press, seems to be self-aware and doesn't take itself seriously and that was part of our problem when we started is trying to take ourselves seriously as an alternative voice in games critiquing and trying to be something um anti-enthusiast press and that's hard because when you look at the gamergate conversation and the controversy nobody said anything and it was almost in a way because at that point we were talking about threats against people's lives and the fear yeah. that these women, these developers, these commentators had for these just disgusting people, the ones that made those threats, not all hashtag users, but 
nothing was said. And then eventually now I'm glad that it was talked about that Chris Grant, that uh, Jeff Gersman, that other, uh, even um, Stephen um, Totillo, Stephen Totillo on Kotaku. Yeah. They had posted that we don't accept this. This is not acceptable at all. This is complete horseshit, essentially, that they finally posted these letters from the editor. And that's good. And I think that it had to happen. But yes, if we look at journalism in and of itself, that's not journalistic, really. Yep. You don't the see the New York Times posting that we like don't agree with this terrorist attack. This terrorist was an asshole, even though it's kind of, you know, generally assumed. Yeah. But yeah. it's not done. So well, them doing it here is just showing that there is a lot more of a cult of personality in games journalism. And I think that that is the bigger ethics problem is that a lot of these games journalists have become their own superstars, not with fame or fortune necessarily, but they have become these YouTube type personalities. And that, yeah. I think, to me, detracts from what they are able to do with the, the medium. Do yeah, you, so do you, sorry, can, can I ahead. break into do we want to continue that track or no? I had a couple things to add. Uh, can I ask quickly to Aaron, like, do you consider that to be equivalent to the Roger Ebert sort of level where somebody is so big they hold too much sway or is that good or bad? I think in any sort of, so talking about a reviewer, a critiquer, uh, someone who like Ebert looked at films just nonstop was reviewing everything and looking at the artistry within that. I don't think it was inherently bad that he became famous and probably wealthy because of his ability to narrate and to dissect a medium. Uh, but he was an exception. What we're yep. seeing, in my opinion, on all of these gaming websites is all of these journalists trying to become their own personalities. Mm -hmm. And it's not just because they all have Twitter accounts and you can follow them, but they insert themselves in the story because maybe gaming is just that personal of a medium and that um, the way that it works, rather than just passively watching a film, you're actively engaging in the game. So you have to insert yourself into the story more. So that I you're think, also ignoring. It's that. also job security. Yeah. yeah. You're also ignoring the financial realities of gaming journalism. Like there is still no company like the New York Times, like USA Today, like any major news outlet well, they have their own TV financial or anything problems. like you cannot support a family as a games journalist. You need to branch out. You need to find other ways. That's yeah. why they have like streaming shows. That's why they have their own podcasts. That's why they have other projects, right. maybe related to games, maybe not related to games. Because... Maybe they cover other stuff. Maybe they have novels they write. Maybe they write books about their experiences. Maybe they're like Leigh Alexander, who started a consultancy in addition to reporting. Right, but all yeah. this is basically because you cannot exist only as a games journalist. And you cannot that, expect them to Nick take it as seriously to. as you want them to if they can't live off of it. Yeah, that's that's a good comparison because Ebert was writing for the Chicago Sun-Times when newspapers still had entire capture of advertising. They could write his paycheck entirely. They didn't have to right. subsidize it. Yeah. Well, the, where, when they had just money flowing in from everywhere. And now, like, there was an article over the weekend talking $40 about... $40 billion. Dollars. $40 billion with a B. Billion dollars being lost over a decade just by the existence of Facebook and Google, never mind them providing better options for advertising. And that's trickled wow. down. The, the magazine and newspaper industries have completely crumbled in America. And not having magazines means also we have fewer options and outlets for 
people who were in the game's press for for magazines. Yeah. The only the only magazine that still stands around, by the way, is the one that's owned by GameStop. Game yep. Informer. They call it a special Nick relationship. Wanted make, Nick depressing. wanted to make a point, but to answer sort of what Tyler was saying really quickly, so Nick can say what he wanted to, uh, and kind of off of what we were talking about is, I I understand and I know. I mean, obviously, I'm not trying to make a living hardcore of doing this but i know the realities if i wanted to of what i would have to try to do to to pay for just living expenses just covering games like i'm well aware of that so i'm not ignoring it but i'm saying that that to me is the inherent problem with games journalism not that people get to go to events and get to talk to developers and hang out with developers and get games for free because all that stuff happens in every other uh, uh industry press there are always these included all-expense trips, free copies of software, etc., and it's just yeah. disclosed, just like game journalists do. They, they at least disclose this was given to us for free, this was paid for, or we don't accept mm-hmm. these trips, whatever. That is ethical. My yes. problem with the ethics is making these games journalists, making themselves personalities, even if it's a financial reality, and that's where we get more of this enthusiast press echo chamber stuff. So that's just what I wanted to add to that. Yeah, and okay. I'm saying that if, you, if you really want these people to hold themselves to that higher standard and to take it as seriously as a large portion of their audience seem to take it, then they need to see this as a long-term viable career in their primary career, not like a supplement to their income. Yep, and I think that comes from trust in a lot of ways. But like the con- the core concept I think that is missing is trust, which is trust from readers that they're reading ethical writing and reporting and analysis from the writers, trust that the writers in their companies, whether the publications or their uh, freelance uh, contracts or whatever, that they will have steady, reliable, rewarding, and long-term work. And You don't need to look any farther than the weekly Famitsu over here in Japan to see how the kind of road that we're going down right now. Like, they used to be considered, like, very trustworthy as a an outlet for reviews and for news and they were actually notorious for being very hard on games yeah. and it was extremely difficult to get a perfect score in Famitsu like you could yep. count on one on two hands like the number of games from like the early 80s until 2000 the number of yeah. games that had gotten a perfect score but yeah. now they're kind of handing them out like candy, and it's very rare to see a game get ravaged by the Famitsu. And it's because I think they probably realize that people don't actually care. Like, they don't care when a game gets a low score. They want to see the games that they like get high scores. So if no one really cares, then what's the point? Like, why put yourself through this... Uh, rigmarole of like dealing with fanboys and people yelling at you and telling you you're a moron and this that the other thing yep just to give them what they say they want which is fair and unbiased reviews like you might as well just give them what they want and then get more advertising money from that and, that's, and also that's like, the rub yeah at the heart of it all like Fumitsu an is unbiased the situation review. that's most cynical yeah and honestly, I think an unbiased review is not something people want because it turned into Reader's Digest. It turned yeah. into, you know, Consumer Reports. And it turned into ObjectiveGameReviews.com. Yeah, <laughs> and and that's that's okay. But 
if I'm looking for a car, I'd rather read a review from an enthusiast press equivalent as opposed to a Reader's uh, Digest or Consumer Reports equivalent because I want to know more about the subtleties and the details as opposed to just straight facts. If I can right, go into the human element. an anecdotal story, like I have dipped my toe into some of the forums like the, the NeoGAF and Reddit uh, conversations about Gamergate. Uh, one of the reviews I saw people specifically pointing to was Danielle Riendo's review of Gone Home, in which she gave it a uh, 10 out of 10. And people were saying that this is uh, uh, evidence of corruption because she personally knows people that worked on the game at the Fulbright Company, and she specifically cites in her review her experience, how it uh, appeals to her experiences. And she is an open lesbian. So people are saying that she is biased and that this has uh, changed her opinion of the game and it is evidence of corruption. But what, what do you want from this review? Like, what is really the consequence? Huh? I laugh because I see that the fact that she's just a lesbian and it's a game about a lesbian relationship in a way that that could be to some gamers in and of itself a bias like that to me is just indicative of some and of the to be completely fair insanity. there were people in the thread pointing that out it wasn't all people like yes rah, 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 you are correct yeah. like the, it, there the, was an actual conversation happening but what i'm curious of is like what do people really think is being achieved by polygon giving that game a 10 or what do they think is really being achieved by that game getting game of the year does it change anything about the games industry? Is it making any of those games going away? Do they really so, think that any of these companies are paying attention to who gets Game of the Year? No, they're paying attention to how it affects their sales. Yep. And as long as the games that you want to see are selling, as long as Call of Duty is selling, so, as long as Bioshock is selling, they're going to make more. So you're, you're getting at exactly the core problem here, which is that... that from an industri- industry's perspective, from the publishers and developers' perspective, especially the publishers and the console holders, what they care about is the bottom line. What they care about is what affects sales. And if it's top reviews from well-known publications like IGN, then fuck yeah, they're going to pursue that. If it's not, then they're not going to care whatsoever if Gone Home got a 10, because like that's not even on consoles yet, although it's coming soon. Does it even have uh, a box, like retail copy? Can you even track yeah, like how many uh, Gone it, Home games have been sold? They have a retail copy that came out. It looks badass because it's like a giant Super Nintendo box. <laughs> um, nice. And full disclosure, Gone Home was our game of the year for 2013, which I don't want to get into right now because I know that was contentious, but um, I stand by it. Um, well, I, I think that this also gets at the heart of the criticism once more right. is that people are looking more at the if they're if people well, are questioning ethics in games, they're looking more at the oh she knows people side of things as opposed to the wait she's looking at this critically and this game echoes her own sentiments and feelings of human experience. At the end of the day, though, if you really think that Polygon gave it game of the year because a few of their staff knew people at Fulbright, then just don't go to Polygon. Don't give them your business. Don't give them your clicks. Like, yeah, that's, that's overall the big part. But please consider the fact that that is kind of crazy to think that that, like the collusion would lead to Polygon trying to do some weird ass backwards maneuver to promote the Fulbright company into like superstardom instantly overnight. Like what, like nothing is achieved by that. Like they're just giving recognition because, and I think this is like what you're getting at tower. 
they don't care about affecting like sales or anything like that. They care about games as a medium of expression. They care yeah. about the future of the industry, the state of the industry, the changes in the industry. And, and even in that weird uh, like conspiracy theory mindset, like look at where we are almost a year later. Like did Fulbright Company get su- propelled to superstardom? No, there's still a handful no. of people making indie games. And we don't even know what their next project is going to be. There's no right. fat stacks of cash. They don't have money to throw around. There are a bunch of people like trying to get by in Portland. Like, there's not. Amen, there's no brother. Conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, they're they're a company of no more than five people right now. They started out as four. Like, they didn't explode. This was a game they wanted to make. Press liked it in some cases. That's good. There was no conspiracy. So, do you yeah. guys think that the insistence on scores because this example of a review of gone home being 10 out of 10 if it didn't have a score attached i doubt it would matter to a lot of the just the basic neanderthal um game core gamers that just follow the scores and the reviews what do you think they're doing are they trying to hold the games press accountable and does that tie into this concerns about accountability that the gamergate element tried to originally bring up this is just a classic case of the heart wanting one thing and the brain wanting another. People say they want like honest critiques and they don't need scores, but at the end of the day, like if you've listened to things that Jeff Gerstmann has said or like the editors of Polygon said when they were founding those sites, they included scores because that's what people want. That's what people click on, and people don't mm-hmm. click on scoreless reviews. They don't read scoreless reviews. So if at the end of the day, like, they give scores because that's what people want. I wonder about that, though, like, if that's still really the case. Because I found myself reading Kotaku's reviews more than anything else lately, and they don't give scores. They give a yes or no, which yeah. is a lot like what we've done. Yeah, um, I mean, that's, that's but maybe that's a minority. Kind of a score. It's just, like, closer to, like, the Roger Ebert style of, like, thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah. And we I definitely think it's the core that... what a review is trying to do, though, without the abstraction of a of metric yeah. scale. We agree so. that the scores still matter, if only because we have developers getting bonuses attached to a Metacritic score. Which, and by the I, way, is not a journalistic concern. Right, not a journalistic concern. Not that you were concern. saying it was, but... But I would find it clear. amusing as if all websites took out a uh, alphabet scores, star scores, or numeric scores, and then see what developers would do. The publishers, I should say, for developer bonuses from there, if there was no oh, like, Metacritic to go off of. They might be forced to actually pay people fair compensation for their work yeah well also different ethics conversation yeah i think (laughs) i think that whole um the giving of bonuses based off scores is a really really bad precedent and i think it's a bad business move because they're chasing the wrong metric i think what would be best in that is something else but that's not the discussion we're having and also at the end of the day like let's be honest it still doesn't matter like yeah movies have been giving like stars for years years and years and years and years years do you honestly think Michael Bay pays any mind to what the Rotten Tomatoes score of any of his movies are? No, because at the end of the day, people are going to go watch it and he's going to make millions of dollars. Yeah. He still gets a billion dollars to film helicopters moving sideways in slow motion, and that's all he wants in life, because he's fucking rich. That's breaking news, that is the title of this next film, Helicopters Moving Sideways. <laughs> well also like the other thing that doesn't matter is it, it's kind of an all or nothing thing with movies especially because people don't really care about review scores on whole they want it to influence people going to the film but what they do care about are the big shiny gold awards at the end of the year yeah 
I, Which, so I know, still don't think Michael Bay gives a shit about any Oscar <laughs> nominations for his movie. Oh, no, but that's, like, in games, getting 10 out of 10, getting 10s, getting good reviews from sites is kind of the gold standard at the moment still because there's no it's one right. codified award show. Them. Box quotes, yeah. Whereas for films, it's, you know, oh, uh, Academy Award winning either for the film or, oh, the previous Academy Award yeah. winner for yeah, somebody who's acting Tomatoes or directing. Yeah, not certified fresh on the exactly. DVD box. <laughs> So do yeah. you, so back on the Gamergate thing, do you guys expect that from this people the the Gamergaters will consider it a win that they think that they've changed accountability of Games Press? Like where do you think their mindset is at now and going to the future? Do you think they've they feel that they've changed accountability in the industry or do they just not think about that now and they want to attack individual people? That a couple that of this? Yeah, a couple of the articles, like by Polygon especially, and, and um, that one was particularly good, addressing the situation, break down ethics. And I hope what comes out of this is education, that people understand more what journalistic ethics means, because I think their definition is skewed, and that's half the problem right now. Mm-hmm. But also, I hope we can take some time away, everybody can take a breath, get calmed down, and then just learn from the situation. Yeah. I, I, I think... I don't know, though. I mean... Even if the, some of these people did think that there were like journalistic breaches because of the, these close relationships, like there was no cause for concern when it came to stuff like Giant Bomb reviewing Harmonix games, even though they're close personal friends with several Harmonix employees. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of their yeah. writers used to work for Harmonix. Yeah, and I think they've even pointed out that there or was Bastion. never an outcry. Well, they never reviewed Bastion, and they never put it up for Game of the Year consideration. It was in their Game of the Year list, wasn't it? No. And they talked about that specifically during their um, podcast for that time because, like, oh, we got to throw Bastion out because we knew these guys, and like they still have one of our cameras. <laughs> <laughs> well, on a smaller scale, we've been going through the same discussion recently on our site. In regards to who? Yes, we did. Well, I mean... In regards to Roundabout. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which so is a game I worked on, so... Yeah. And that's an ethical thing that, I mean, the three of us that have the journalism training, it was a pretty clear ethical statement to make. But, I mean, not to, like, call out Tyler, but he did question that, and that was a justifiable thing. Not because he didn't know mm-hmm. how ethics worked, but he had a justifiable concern of is this ethical to cover it at all to cover a game to review? I did the review for that, a game that Nick had tested and been a part of even with a disclaimer. And that's, I think that that to me as intelligent and read as Tyler is almost echoes some of the concerns and the problems with this whole movement are the people who like Doug was talking about, maybe are now getting primers from these these press uh, sites that explain how the ethics of journalism work, those who aren't as well-versed in it might just be overblowing the situation or thinking that, like, whoa, this is all unethical, when yeah. realistically a disclaimer does a lot to clear that up. I mean, yeah. there's not this crazy tablet upon which all journalism ethics are based. It's pretty cut and dry. But that's not a discussion that everybody's had unless you've been in J school generally or work right. in the and, industry. And and the best part is we we thought based on our our training, our rules, like what we know, that this was the right move, and yet still Tyler came in with the layman's view and questioned why. 
questioned it. And so it's, it's after hashing it out a little bit, I kind of stood there and went, wait, this is important to keep in mind because our point of views are different based off of our experience. Not just that, but if you haven't already thought about it in a professional context, like it's not necessarily going to be obvious to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like we had to all sit and think about it too. Like how do we best address this? Because like, obviously I'm going to keep working on games. I'm going to keep trying to participate in helping other games, but um, I don't want that to compromise my ethics or how my ethics are perceived, which are two different things, but both important. So, Yeah, if Nick had written the review, totally unethical. That would have been a breach, but disclaiming the fact that there is a relationship there, even still with a a third party writing the review, that's how you take care of that. And I'm hoping that from this going forward, that conversations and ethics with the press from, and it sounds bad, but as Doug used the term layman, who may not have that training or that knowledge or that experience, I'm hoping that them being aware of now how some of these press elements work and uh, journalistic ethics, if they educate themselves, they might not have these concerns. Or at least when there is a major problem, it's very clearly like, oh, well, you're not being ethical because you wrote a review of a game that you were involved with. That's clearly unethical, not you're giving a 10 score to a game about lesbians because some feminists on staff like the game or some shit like that that they want to bring up like yeah not personal preference and lifestyle choice being an ethical question but rather how you handle the dissemination of information about a project that you might have been intrinsically tied to that is the problem not how you self-identify right and that's i think one last thing i wanted to mention because i know we're running up against our time limit but i wanted to because i think it's very relevant here is um disclosure uh is a concept that it's actually pretty, it's, it's complex. I think people are all realizing that now. And uh, it's something that is not consistently employed, employed across all of games criticism. Like, I don't want to get into the whole issue of, like, is games journalism even a thing? But when I talk about criticism, I mean anything from the most established tried and true publications like IGN uh, to the YouTube sensation who has a massively growing following who does mostly just fun dumb stuff ripping off games i don't mean dumb in a bad way i just mean like you know poking fun and stuff or like playing up tropes who also does some criticism on the side so somebody like um, are you deliberately not mentioning names or do you just forget their name uh no i'm not i'm a little bit of both i was oh. thinking of john tron when i mentioned the last one though um uh, i thought you were who, talking about total biscuit Oh, Total Biscuit, yeah, he falls into a similar category of people who make their living off of, you know, producing videos. And I, I, I think that the term YouTuber maybe connotes something that isn't necessarily fair or accurate, but people who, you know, make their living primarily on video um, streaming sites like that, like creating original content, critiquing mm-hmm. or exploring games, or building upon them in a meaningful way. Uh, ethical disclosures are a sticky thing there because there is no real overhead or oversight to make sure those people are disclosing. Uh, It's very easy to get away with um, not mentioning a casual relationship where someone gives you a game because who's going to look into it if you're just some dude broadcasting videos. Like if you have the clout of a PewDiePie or a Total Biscuit, that's probably harder because they're probably going to be more watchdogs. But uh, the case of like Shadow of Mordor, uh, the Middle Earth game that came out recently, there was a recent uh, kind of can't think of a better word for this but kerfluffle is that, <laughs> storm is that in a con- teacup yeah sure about like well actually i think it's a legitimate concern but oh yeah uh, that's true that's it's not quite as minor as that 
Yeah, Warner Brothers decided to um, only give out review copies to certain people, like YouTube personalities, with very, very strict uh, guidelines around how they could play the game, promote it. Uh, but basically, it boiled down to you need to create a live stream where you mention, you call out purchasing options or like call out the game's name or something five times. Yeah, the, the, the standards by which you had to, or what you had to do in order to qualify on your live stream, they're out there if you want to go search for them. But yeah, it's, it's worth it's reading. Very, some of it's which very made strict. sense, some of which seemed kind of excessive and controlling. At that point, though, it felt, I think it, my, my journalistic sense, like my spidey sense, Wrong. was telling me that this is way too far into the realm of like, you are a paid marketer, and all you got was a free copy of the game. Good for you. Yeah. If there's How is one that thing I would want people to take away from this conversation, though, is that this is an industry that there is like strong potential for ethical breaches and corruption and things like that. But the Gamergate movement and the way they have gone about trying to draw attention to it and trying to fix these problems is unproductive and that there are better ways of uh, dealing with these issues and creating a conversation than uh, harassing people, attacking people, or even just like having forum conversations about, oh, this person is biased, this person is corrupt. Like, we can have a civil discussion, but we need to get away from what this movement has become. And so, for better or for worse, uh, the name Gamerengate is toxic. It has been poisoned, and there is no going back to that well. We need to close up, and if this is, if you really want to fix things, not that things are broken, if you want to be proactive about this, find another way. Make a new movement, and actively try to repel the people that derailed your conversation mm-hmm. and assume don't assume the worst of the person you're talking to like if you're serious about writing about games i can speak for all of us here none of us would take ethics lightly none of us like would approach this and be like oh man i wonder how i can exploit this system to get the most free games possible because i really want to play like yeah fucking i don't know assassin's creed rogue before it hits the street like who cares <laughs> like there are such when like Life is so about so much more than games, and we spend a lot of time, each of us, thinking about playing, discussing games, but... And something you know, I've learned from this whole experience is that making a sweeping generalization of someone's character is a really quick way to end a conversation. If you ever yes. hope to accomplish anything, calling someone biased, saying someone's corrupt, saying someone's a misogynist, or this, that, and the other thing... Mm-hmm. you are ending any sort of discussion that would ever possibly be held because that person yeah. is immediately going to go on the defensive regardless of any legitimate case you might have for making any kind of accusation. Yeah, yeah. and building a movement off of who a woman had sex with is not a good way to start. So, Nope. Just want to put that in there even though that's not part of the discussion we're having. I just would feel would be remiss if we... I didn't mention my still just discussed over the general movements. And that's why I do hope it is, as Tyler said, um, drained that the poisoned well is drained and Mm -hmm. there can be open discussions about ethics, ethics with concrete examples about press um, misuse and not press misuse assumed through the sexual relations alleged of, a, a woman, which yep. is again 
the worst part of this movement. And I don't care if it sounds like I'm generalizing, but that has been to me just the most gut-wrenching part of this. Yeah. So that just needs to be said. Yeah. These conversations need to be entered with a goal of mutual accomplishment and a tone of respect. Like, bar none. Nailed it. Yep. All right. Uh, guys, thank you for joining me for this discussion. I think it's a, I think we've said our piece probably. So, um, let us know, let the audience know where they can find you in the meantime until the next episode goes up. Uh, Doug, where are you at? Yo, I'm at Douglas Bonham on Twitter and going to have some stuff up on SiliconSasquatch.com soon. That.com though. Uh, Tyler, how about you? Uh, you can find me at most social places at Tyler A. Martin or on most gaming services as that jerk Tyler. And I wouldn't bother doxing me because I don't have any money and I don't live in the States. No. <laughs> don't dox me because I don't have anything interesting. You just in moved, life. so give him a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, how about you? Um, I'm at Aaron Thayer on Twitter and on almost all gaming platforms, A-Thay, A-T-H-A-Y. Um, I'm pretty busy right now, so I'm probably not very active on either, but I am helping in the back end of the website get these guys' content posted. So you'll mostly be seeing my work through Doug's work. <laughs> yep. And uh, I'm at Nick Cummings on Twitter, uh, and I'm Ymog, W-H-Y-M-O-G, on virtually every gaming platform. I like playing games with people and chatting with them, so you should let me know if you want to do a thing. And uh, I will, I guess, get my ass back in gear now that I moved and start producing some podcasts and writing again. Yay. Yay. Hooray. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please tell your friends. Let us know what you think. We invite conversation. Uh, We appreciate your respect. And we will be back with another episode soon. Silicon Sasquatch is an independent blog covering the social and cultural significance of games based in Portland, Oregon. Our five team members are Doug Bonham, Nick Cummings, Tyler Martin, Aaron Thayer, and Spencer Tordoff. This episode of the Squatchcast was produced by Nick Cummings. We publish new essays, editorials, analyses, and everything in between all the time at SiliconSasquatch.com. Follow along on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SiliconSasquatch or on Twitter where we are at Sasquatch Gaming. If you enjoyed our show, please tell your friends and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode.